0: Well, we have been in the book of Proverbs, and I, I, I told the folks yesterday at, at the funeral, you know, Solomon, without a doubt, is my favorite author in the Bible, um, certainly the Old Testament. I love what Paul does in the New Testament, but, you know, Solomon um, has been told, or we've been told is the wisest man that ever lived, and I totally believe that. I totally believe that. I, I think that his writings bring an insight into different aspects of life that probably like no other book of the Bible uh, ever could do. And I, in fact, personally, I think that everything in the rest of the Bible probably goes back to Solomon's writings, and I really believe that. <clears throat> I believe the New Testament goes back to the Book of Song of Solomon, and I believe that the uh, uh, you know all the Old Testament and and many of the New Testaments go back to the Book of Proverbs, and that's really where we have been for uh, quite a while now. And uh, Proverbs is an incredible book because. I don't know of another book that just deals with the issues of life that we all face. And, you know, we're all going to face issues. God never promised that once we got saved that we would have a problem-free life. He never did that. God wouldn't promise that bad things wouldn't happen to us, and God never promised uh, that, uh, you know, we wouldn't go through some tough times. What he did promise that he would give us the Word of God and the principles that we could live above the circumstances no matter what those are. And that's really what Proverbs does. It deals with the issues of life. And uh, we have been (laughs) stuck, so to speak, on Proverbs chapter 11, verse 1, one of the greatest verses and principles found anywhere in the Bible. It says, a false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. Let's pray. Father, thank you today for all you do for us. Thank you for uh, your hand and your care and your keeping and for the folks that have uh, come out today today. On this beautiful day. And we ask you, Father, to bless us and let us be a blessing to these people. Uh, Lord, uh, I don't know what all of their needs are, but certainly in a crowd this size in this room, there would be people that have needs that only you can meet. So help me, Father, to, to, to be sensitive to that and to lay out and to give those things that will only be edifying and blessing and help somebody get to where they need to be with you. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And Shake, we ask it. Amen. Now, we have been talking about a balance. And we've not been up to this point in the last couple of weeks, we have been talking about how to find the balance. And then a couple of weeks ago, and we're going to carry on with it today, I'm going to talk to about how not just to find the balance, but how to maintain the balance. I must say I've had a flood of people over the last couple of weeks that have either come over to my home or, uh, you know, have caught me at Bible study or whatever and just talked about uh, different areas of their life, how this has really helped them to get where they want to be. And uh, I just don't want to focus on the importance of establishing a balance, though that's vitally important in our lives. But I want to also show you how to maintain it on an everyday basis. And that's what we're going to talk about today. But just so we kind of get a context here, so far, when we started this, we started with a definition of a balance. And I told you that one of the greatest things that I've ever followed when it came to my own life or the Bible or whatever is never to overemphasize something in life or in the Bible more than God does. Always keep it in that context of balance like he does. And over the last month or so, we have worked through some key areas of balance in our life. And we've tried to start and go all the way through and cover all the major areas. We first week, we talked about God in the Bible, uh, God in his word. Uh, God is the most complete and perfect balance and the perfect pattern and model for all balances in the Bible. And that's why the Bible is so relative to our lives. And I know that we live in a world today where the world takes a position that the Bible's not relative anymore. But all you have to do is look at this country and look at their lives, and you know that that's simply not true. I was driving down the road the other day, and I saw a car in front of me (coughs) that had a bumper sticker on it that said, God is my co pilot. As I drove by him and glanced over, it was very obvious that God was not the pilot. And that's true in most people's lives today. We want God in our world, but we don't want him in charge. And uh, as a Christian, we should mold our lives around the patterns, the models, the great balances that are found in the Bible. When you go through the Bible, you'll find that uh, there's a model faith that we all ought to follow. We'll find that there's a model walk that we should have with God, a model work in doing something for God. We'll find that there's a model marriage. For those of you who are married or contemplating marriage or uh, in, in that area, we'll find, out, find that there's a model uh, stewardship in the Bible. We're to be stewards of God. The Bible talks about a model ministry. Bible talks about a model church. The Bible talks about all kinds of models in the Word of God, and there's great character studies that show us how the models work. The study of Abraham, the study of Jacob or Joseph or Moses. There's so so many of them. And then what we did, the next thing we came through is we, we put our own church under the microscope. I've said many, many times, if our church can't bear the scrutiny of the Word of God, then we ought to take a look at what we're doing here. So we looked at our church and how and why we teach and preach and do what we do with the principles to help you not only find the balance, but to maintain the balance to deal with the issues in life. We follow the Bible. That's all we follow. That's our only mandate. That's all we have. We don't have any other books. We don't have any other things that we use uh, other than things that are from the Bible, but our fundamental uh, teaching tool is the Word of God. And, uh, And I'll tell you something else. We don't just take parts of it. We don't take just the parts we like and then leave the part that doesn't fit our own personal agenda. Uh, We teach the whole counsel of God, as Paul said in Acts chapter 20, verse 27. We take the parts that we don't like. When I'm preaching, I don't spare the parts that I think may offend some people. Sometimes being offended is the first step of finding God in your life. Do you know that? When a preacher backs off from that because he doesn't want to offend you, and, and understand, I don't get up in the morning and have a list of people I want to offend. I think God does, but I don't. <clears throat> I just lay out the Word of God. I don't have any bias in it. I don't have any, uh, you know, I'm like that statue for the court system, justice is blind. When I preach, I just preach the Bible, and I figure that the Holy Spirit of God takes it and puts it into people's lives as they need it. Well, then we talked about the personal areas of our lives. We talked about our family, didn't we? We talked about a, having a vision for your family and how to balance that vision. We talked about the threefold aspect of a vision for your family out of the book of Habakkuk, how to write the vision, how to make it plain to your, for your family, and then how to, the, the, your family will read it, and then they'll run with it and do something for Lord. the Lord. Then last week, we talked about our relationship to a New Testament local church, how important that is. We had previously talked about the church of being a structure and a vehicle by which we want to get to where we want to go. And you remember, I never really got into it, but I'm going to explain it now. I talked to you how that when God wanted to balance out everything in the world, God gave three institutions by which everything balances out in the world. They're ordained of God, and it gives the world that we live in balance. The first one is marriage or the family, and that's found in Genesis chapter 2, 3, and 4 with Adam and Eve. It's further defined in the book of Ephesians chapter 5 when Paul wrote his great discourse on marriage and then ran it back to to Adam and Eve. And Adam and Eve were the original marriage that uh, is set up by God as an institution. It's a model. And everything, when you look at that and study it, everything you need is right there. And I'll be the first to tell you, I do a lot of marital counseling and I do a lot of work with young couples and middle-aged couples and older couples. And uh, it's a thing where there's a lot of confusion today about marriage. Uh, Marriage is not something that God, uh, that man designed. We get the idea that, you know, that man was a caveman way back when, and when he came out of the cave, he took a club and hit some lady over the head and drug her into his cave, and that's where marriage started. A little bit later on, they got it more sophisticated, so they said, we got to clean up our act a little bit, so they did it a little differently. That's not how it works. Marriage has always been the first institution that God ordained and sustain through his word. Now, you want to know why young couples have marriages today, uh, problems in their marriage today? Well, first of all, they don't understand marriage when they get into it. Second of all, they don't realize that marriage is something that God set up and God ordained. And if you're going to have a successful marriage, since it's by God's design, you're going to have to run that marriage by the design that God intended it to run by. And when you don't, it's not complicated. You don't need Dr. Phil to sit out or some therapist to analyze you. It's real simple. God designed it. God set it up. God gave it to us. When we do it outside the way God says it will be done, we're going to have problems. If you put oil in your gas tank and you put water, gas in your in your radiator, you're going to have some problems. There's a design how it needs to run, and it's the same way with marriage. And this is where, unfortunately, the failure of marriage comes in today. Then there's civil government. Civil government. Genesis chapter 10, the first Gentile kingdom. That's where the governments start. God established uh, the government uh, by God for civil order. Romans chapter 13 says, Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God, and the powers that be ordained of God. He says in verse 12 that if you resist the power, then you resist God. And we live in a world today where, you know, a lot of people are anti-government. Now, I don't always like what the government does. I'm not sure I like what the government is doing now, but I understand that God ordained it, and I realize that God judges nations. He judges governments just like he does people. I grew up in an era of the Vietnam War, served in the military during the Vietnam War, as Some, many of you did. And of those of you who can remember back that far, you know that it, the, the America and the military and the war in Vietnam was not very popular. Boys would come back from sacrificing and giving their lives and, and, uh, or people would come back after being wounded and come in at the airport or come home on leave and people would walk up, young people, and spit on their uniforms and, and do all kinds of terrible things to them. It was a very unpopular war. And I, I, remember, I remember as I got, got into the Word of God a little bit later and learned these things, I'm not saying that the war in Vietnam was moral or immoral. I don't ever go there. You know why? Because it's not my place to judge where a war is moral or immoral. It's my job when my country calls upon me to go fight that war, and if it's immoral or moral, God will sort it out when he judges the nations. If you don't have that, if you don't have some order in society, then you got anarchy, you have chaos. And as I said, God judges nations just as he judges individuals. The great model in the Bible for government is the nation of Israel. Hey, when America was founded with our founding fathers, they built into it what has been come to be called uh, Judeo-Christian principles. Took some from the Old Testament that were right, like the Ten Commandments. That's why you saw them in schools and saw them on courthouses. They it was such an influence and a model for what our country should be. And you find the Christian principles in the early founding fathers, because they they knew that government was ordained of God. But we've lost that today. And then the third one we've talked about was the New Testament local church. The structure, the vehicle, by which we get wherever we want to go with God. Uh, In life, these three form a balance. And here's how it works. Number one, uh, when you have the right marriage, that keeps the population going. Two, when you have the right government, it keeps the population safe. And three, when you have a New Testament local church that's doing what God's told them to do, then you get the population saved and on their way to heaven. That's how it works. I told you that the church is the vehicle by which God will get you to wherever he's called you to go. And I gave you two great truths. God never violates his own principles. And God will never call a man outside the structure of the New Testament church. God will run everything through it because that's his program. I'm not saying there's not a lot of good a pair of church organizations out there that, 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 and, I, and many of them do good things. I'm not saying that they're wrong, but I'm saying is God's program is a New Testament local church ordained by him as the other two. So last week I, I took you through the complete study from the Bible about churches. I wanted you to understand that when you begin a relationship with the church, There's some things you need to understand about what the church should be. And remember I gave you 10 key verses that lay out the church and the structure of God and how it should be and what it should do for us in our relationship and how that everything in our life should go along with that relationship. And I told you three things that form the balance of any New Testament church. First of all, is it Bible-based? Is it fundamentally started on the biblical principles of the Word of God? Two, is it a Bible-preaching church? Does it preach the Word of God? And three, is it a Bible-teaching church? Does it does it value a teaching for helping you edify after preaching does the work uh, in our lives? We saw the church and its leadership are our safety nets, how to keep us from, from ruining our lives or the lives of somebody else. And I gave you two great principles that go along with this, and it's simply that... Uh, We're called through the church and sent out by the church based on the model found in the book of Acts. So that brings us up to basically what we have done so far in the area of balance. So you people that are maybe new today or uh, uh, you understand kind of context where we're going. Now today I want to continue to define the balance of relationships, You know, relationships are absolutely vital in our life. When God made us, when God created us, he created us with the ability to have relationships. He never intended man to be on an island someplace by himself. He never intended man uh, not to socialize with other people. He, He designed us to want to be around other people and have relationships. But when relationships get out of balance or when relationships break down, everything in our life gets out of balance. And the reason for that is is because relationships are connected to our emotions. We meet somebody, we like somebody, we fall in love with somebody, and that's how the process works. We see this, we like this, we love this, we buy this. It's the greatest thing we ever had. That's how it works in relationships. And when it comes to relationships, there's no greater one that you could ever have than the one you have with the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to build everything I'm going to talk about today in the aspect of relationships around that relationship because that just as the church is the vehicle by which a man or a young man or a woman or whoever goes out and does something for the Lord, your relationship with Christ is the key ingredient that all other relationships should be viewed through, decided upon, and based uh, particularly on the one you have with the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, unfortunately... It doesn't happen that way in life most of the time. In most cases, people, especially young Christians, we have them come in all the time and we try to help them. And I try to tell people, and I know you tell them too when you work with them, it's really hard right after you get saved and you're starting to build a relationship with the Lord, it's really tough to try to build two intimate relationships at the same time. And how many times I've seen where a guy or a gal starts coming to church, they start get in, and out of the clear blue sky comes some old girlfriend from way back when, some old boyfriend from over here, or they meet somebody here, or they get online and they get into youharmony.com, going to mess your life up.com, and they get all of that stuff together, and it, it's a disaster. And it comes back to the fact that as a young Christian, you've not learned how to have a relationship with God yet. You just haven't. People that you can see and feel and touch will always take the place of a being you can't see and touch in a physical way before you learn how to do that through the Word of God and having a relationship with Him. It happens all the time. And it's a something that's a tool of the devil in the world to try to get you from ever fulfilling what God wants you to do. And I've said this many, many times. If you're saved here this morning, if there was a time in your life when you trusted Christ as your own personal Savior, God has something that he wants you to do. And he'll put everything in your life to try to accomplish that. But the devil doesn't want you to accomplish that. So he'll put everything and everybody in your life to keep you from accomplishing that. And many times that's exactly what happens. I I don't know how many times I've seen it where somebody started out good and started to grow and then, Somebody comes in that they can see and they're lonely and I get it all and they want all of that and boy, God goes out the window faster than he came in. Now, in maintaining your relationship with Christ, there has to be a series of balances and this is what I want to get into this morning. Bible says in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 and 2, it says, my little children, these things write I unto you that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins and not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, I know none of you, uh, none of us have a perfect life. Bible's not saying that. And I know that we all struggle with things. We all have issues in our life. I'm certainly not perfect. I have struggles in my life, as you do. But what the verse does says that these things that God wrote to us the Word of God, they will keep us from sin and get us to a place in our life that even though we're imperfect, we can get a great relationship with God. There was an old grandmother one time that I knew, and she was a good saint and loved the Lord, and she loved to give away Bibles, and I really learned this from her. This was years ago. And she would see some new Christian and she would see somebody who didn't have a Bible and she would get one for them and she would make a little cookies or a little plate of cookies and give them the Bible. And on the inside of this Bible, she always wrote this little saying. This Bible will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from this Bible. And boy, that is one of the most profound things that that anybody could ever say. Because from the Bible, we know that we can't be a perfect man or woman. But in the Bible, there is also a daily perfecting of our life, and we become more like Christ. We grow up, as the Bible says in Ephesians 4, 15, into him. A Christian needs to have a process in his life or her life where they, once they get saved, they begin to grow up and become more like Christ every day of their life. Somebody a couple of Thursday nights ago asked the difference between God's plan for your life and God's will for your life. And I clearly stated that God's plan for your life is what you do, but God's will for your life is what you become in your relationship with Christ. And most people want to focus on what they're going to do for the Lord. I always tell people, forget what God wants you to do. Focus on what God wants you to be. Because in 45 years of ministry, I never found anybody ever who focused on what God wanted them to be first who ever missed what God wanted them to do. That's how it works. That's how, you, that's how it begins. Now, I want to start here to give you a series of balances for the Christian life. And if you follow them uh, within the structure, you will get as close to God as humanly possible in this life. Now, I call this uh, my maintenance balance. You know, we live in a world where we like to use terms like proactive. Let's all get proactive today. They talk about, you know, preventive maintenance. When you're driving your car, somebody at Ford or Chevy or Chrysler or whatever you drive, fixed it so when your car goes over a certain miles and your engine's out, your red light warning comes on. And you know what? I, I I don't know, and I may be wrong on this. I'm just, but I don't know too many people that get into a panic when that red light comes on. I've driven mine for two or three years. At night, it makes a kind of little night light in the car. <laughs> When it annoys me so much, a piece of duct tape goes over it. You know, outside the Bible, the greatest gift God ever gave man was duct tape. I fix everything with it. I hold everything together. with The world is held together with duct tape. But uh, that little red light comes on. It's telling you that it's time to take your engine needs looked at. And, you know, we, we, we don't do that. I bet there's not one person in 10 that the moment that red light comes on, the next week you take your car in. And you know, we as God's people, when we come to church, we hear a message, and inside us, the little red engine light comes on, that little warning light that there's something that isn't quite right, we do the same thing. We'll drive on through life for another four or five months, six or seven months, maybe a year, two years, now, you know what happens eventually? I mean, the red light means something. <laughs> eventually, you're going to be in a hurry to go somewhere, and that engine's going to blow up, and a rod's going to come up through the roof. I love talking like this when I know nothing about it. <laughs> you're going to burn up the engine, blow up the engine, the transactyl's going to go out, the transmission's going to go out, and, go and everything's going to fall apart. And, it, you know, it, it's a thing where that, that's what happens it breaks down. And in a Christian's life, you keep putting off the and being very proactive and fixing it when the red light keeps coming on and on. Hey, there isn't a time that you don't go hear a church service someplace. If a guy's worth his salt and preaches the Bible, that in some area of your life, a little red light doesn't come on. Now, you either do what I do and ignore that light in my car or you do something with it. And of course, that's the problem today. And that's where, that's where we're at. And that's the issues that we, we all struggle with. And, uh, you know, uh, now I call this my maintenance bounce. Found in Second Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5. That's a little verse here that, that I, I just like, and I use it all the time. I keep it for myself, and I, I can't tell you how many times I've been in on myself in it, and I give it out all the time, and it simply says this. It's Paul writing here that the church at Corinth who's having their issues, and he says this. Examine yourself, whether you be in the faith, prove your own selves, know your own selves, how that Jesus Christ is in you except you be reprobates. Now, the first part of that three-fourth balance that if you want to maintain your relationship with God and have that thing is you have to examine yourself, a self-examination. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 28, let every man examine himself. And he said over there in 1 Corinthians eleven, thirty-one: 31, if we would judge ourselves, we'd not be judged. See, you have to examine yourself through preaching. That's what preaching does. Preaching, self examination is vital to our balance in a relationship with God. The Word of God is like a mirror. And you know what? We're all the same way. I really like to think I look like Brad Pitts. But when I look in the mirror, I'm sorely disappointed. <laughs> I only take comfort in the fact that somewhere out in Hollywood, Brad Pitt wants to look like me. <laughs> you know, when you look into a mirror, it shows you what you really look like. How many times, ladies, have you put a dress on and got yourself hair fixed just right, and you're thinking to yourself, this is it, and you look in the mirror, and oh boy, it's back to the closet, and rework the whole thing one more time. <laughs> Guys are a little bit different. We don't really give a flip. We just look at ourselves and says, what I am is what you get, and we go on with life. But none of us really like what we see when we see in the mirror. And you know the Bible is the looking glass? He says in James chapter 1, verse 22 and 23, 4 and 5, he says, but be ye doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. For if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, He is like unto a man that beholdeth natural face in a glass. For he beholdeth himself and goeth his way, not God's way, and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty, and here's the key, continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. Now, this is why Christianity today, and I'll just be honest with you, this is why in most churches today, they don't preach anymore. It's all a surface teaching thing. It's all, you're okay, I'm okay. I'm not criticizing anybody. I'm just telling you the way it is. And it's because we have raised generations now of young men who can't preach anything. Preaching, as I showed you last week, will perfect you. It'll keep the balance in your life and force you to examine yourself. People say all the time, well, I don't like going to that church. He's too loud. He yells too much. (laughs) He always talks about negative stuff. I don't like it because I don't like being yelled at. No, the truth of the matter is, you don't like being forced looking into the mirror. Because when we look into the mirror, we always see the way we really are. You know, we are... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we all do it. We all get dressed up and think we look one way and then we look in the mirror and it ain't exactly the way we thought it was. Now, the second thing he says in that great verse is to, is to examine yourself. Then he says to prove yourselves. Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 5, he said, prove all things and hold fast to that which is good. It shouted God, needs to prove himself. He does this one way through his ministry within his local church, the structure. Last week, we saw how Paul and Timothy uh, did that, and we talked how that works. You know, in the book of Judges, chapter 3, the Bible says that after they went through the 40 years of of wandering and they went through the book of Joshua where they fought all the battles and they finally got into the land, and they move into the book of Judges, which is the next book, and now they're in the land. They have everything that God promised them, and yet the Bible says that The Bible says that God left some nations to prove them. He didn't take away all the negative nations out of their life because God wanted to use those nations to find out if the nation of Israel would really do what God told them to do. And you know what? You put that in a practical application for you and for me, God won't always take everything out of your life that's not good. God will leave some troubles and some heartaches in your life. God will leave some things there just so he wants to prove you. You see, it's one thing to say, oh, I love God, and God is so good, and oh, praise the Lord, but everything is good, is good in your life. But when your world falls apart, that's when your relationship it really shines. Christians have something to prove. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. There are some things that a Christian needs to prove to the world. We look at Abraham and what a great picture he is. And in Genesis chapter 22, when God asked him to give his son, his only begotten son that he loved, and put him on that altar and take his life, God was proving him. God didn't let him go through with it because once God saw that he was willing to go through with it, God never intended for him to kill that boy. He proved him. And you and me, we have to prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God in our lives. You know, most of you have kids, teenagers, and they all get in trouble, and you have to take things away from them. You have to discipline them in some way or the other. And, you know, for them to get it back, they have to earn it back. And you know as well as I do, I've never met too many kids that were just thrilled to death that they had to prove themselves back to their parents to get something that they lost. They don't like it. And adults say, well, I got to do that, you know, because I'm a good parent. Okay, but I've learned over the years that adult Christians don't like to do it either. And sometimes God, it comes down to you proving yourself to get what God has for you. You don't like it any better than your kids do. And so they, they, you, we do exactly what your kids do. We find a way around it. We find a way to justify it because this is what we really want to do. So he says, examine yourself, prove yourself, and then the third thing he says is know yourself. And this is probably the hardest thing to do because this is simply being honest with yourself. Now, this is, like I said, one of the hardest things to do. Nobody knows who you really are better than you do. I don't know the real you. I love what I see, and I, love, I see God in you, but you know we all, everybody in life has an old sin nature. A guy asked a friend of mine, was a preacher one time, and he was kind of setting him up. I was there, they were having dinner together, and the guy really didn't, was kind of being, uh, kind of phariseical in what he said, and he said to my buddy, he said, well, let me ask you a question. He says, what would you say is the, as a Christian is the number one sin in your life that you struggle with? Now, that's a loaded question. And my buddy was smarter than the question, and he simply said, you know what? I have the ability to commit any sin found in the Word of God if I get out of that Bible. And that's a true statement. The only thing that keeps you and me from going off the deep end and world today is the book that God gave us and the fact that it's in your heart and the fact that you've developed a relationship that you love Him more than you do the things of this world. That's how it works. But nobody knows you better than you do. And I, and I always watch people. We love, we love to judge everything. People will come into a church and they'll, first thing they'll walk in and they'll, they'll look around at the church and they'll say, hmm, beautiful building. Hmm. I wound up for the first 10 minutes, I was in the service over at the fly shop. I thought that's where the church was. Well, this is nice. It's in the basement. Great bomb shelter. People judge how cold it is or how hot it is. In the summertime, people will come up and say, it's really hot in here. In the the wintertime, they'll come up and say, it's really cold. You can't make them happy. I told the boys, put two thermostats back there. Don't hook them up to anything. And when somebody comes to me, I just says, you set it however you want to set it. I've not had a problem in four years now. Somebody will come in and you'll judge the way they're dressed. People are very conscious about going to church. That's why I always wear a suit and tie. They'll they'll judge the singing. I guarantee you when the old past boys were up here doing today, there were people back there that loved it. There were people back there that said, oh, that's not my style. People back there and says, "Uh, there's Bubba. They, they, they they, They were judging everything. I'm preaching right now and I'm, I'm, I'm laying out the word of God and there's people who judge my sermon. They'll say, oh, it's the greatest thing i ever heard. I don't like him or I just this or that. We judge everything. We judge everything except ourselves. But that's what we do. That's what we do. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 3 says that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, and who can know it? Well, the Lord knows it. And the truth of the matter is, you and I know it about ourselves. Now, when you get that balance in your life and you have a real, a real relationship with God, now you have a very good system. There's an old saying how many heard this? A stitch in time saves nine. How many heard that statement before? I'm old, I'm old, yes. Now, the test, what's it mean? I have no idea. <laughs> David, what's it mean? It means if you go ahead and stitch it up now, you might have to save yourself putting nine stitches. Absolutely. You get up in the morning and your socks got a little hole in it. And you think to yourself, I can fix that right now. But you don't because you're busy, you're late, and it's only a little hole. You wear it all day long. You come home and take your shoes off and the heel, your whole heel is sticking out where that little hole was. <laughs> One stitch in time saves nine later on. And when it comes to a relationship, taking care of business with God now when it's still a small hole, keeps it from coming into a real problem in your life. And that will keep, help keep your priority in relationship. You, you examine yourself, you prove yourself, and you be, know yourself. Now, now, here's how it works. Last week, under, the, uh, under a preaching church, I, I gave you Jeremiah chapter 1, verses 4 through 10. And, uh, and he said that, uh, I told you that there were four things that preaching accomplished. And when you come down through that passage, and Jeremiah was a great preacher, when you come down through that passage, Jeremiah said, God put his words in his mouth. He told him what to say. He sent him to nations, the nation of Israel, and he says, I've sent you there to root out. I've sent you there to pull down. I've sent you there to destroy. I've sent you there to throw down. Then he says, then you can build and you can plant. Now, see, preaching will expose these things in your life. Teaching by itself would never any preaching We'll just help you hide them because teaching edifies. And the last thing any of us need is being edified when we need to tear down some things in our lives. The last thing I need in my life is for somebody to tell me who good I am, how good I am, and how wonderful I am, and how great this is. And you get after a while, you get to believe in your own press releases. The greatest thing you need to know about yourself and I need to know about myself is the fact that inside us, brother, there have to be some things that always constantly need to be pulled down, rooted out, destroyed, and thrown down. I told you last week that teaching, one of the greatest statements I probably have ever given you, teaching will always rest on the foundation of Bible preaching. And most pastors today, most churches today, they don't preach. There's no preaching involved. It's just teaching. And honestly, I'm just being honest with you, this is why most people don't like or tolerate real Bible preaching. Because it forces them to make a choice in their life, it makes them uncomfortable. But once you're honest with yourself and your heart, and you really want that relationship with God more than anything else, then you simply will examine yourself, you'll prove yourself, and you know yourself. And then you will next follow the next threefold balance in dealing with issues that God uh, has given us, we have to deal with in our life and our relationship with Him. And I give this next balance to people all the time. Here's the solution to any issue you have in your life today the threefold balance of balancing the balance and putting it into your life. Now, you have problems in your life today? I'm not asking for an amen here, I already know most of us do. You want to know how to fix any problem in your life? Or you just want to talk about fixing it? Do you really say, well, I got some issues. I came to church today because I got some problems in my life. I got some things I need to get past. I need got some things I need to get over. I need got some things I need to fix in my own personal relationship with God. Do you really want to? Well, if you really sincerely want to, then you simply do these three next things based on the last three things that I gave you. Now, you've got a problem in your life. Here's the first thing you do. You need to identify the problem. You do this by knowing yourself, being honest with yourself, and examining yourself in the light of the Holy Spirit of God convicting you through preaching. You get honest. you got somebody that's a drug abuser, somebody that's an alcoholic, They say, well, I want to get past my alcoholism. I want to get past my drug abuse. I want to get past all this stuff. It's dragging me down. Let me say something. You will never stop drinking. You will never stop taking drugs until you want a relationship with God more than you do the booze and the drugs. I hear people out of time, well, I want to stop drinking. I don't want to be an alcoholic. I don't want to do drugs, but I really don't want to come to church and build a relationship with God. You're wasting your time. You're wasting your time. You have to stop your denial of your situations. Parents will deny that there's a problem with their children until it's too late. Adults will uh, be in denial that they have an issue until it becomes such a stronghold in their life that it destroys them. Preaching will always identify the problem in our lives. That's what it's designed to do. The Word of God is a light that shines and will shine in all the dark corners of our lives. Now, I know fully what I'm saying, that 99% of Christianity today wants nothing to do with preaching. And yet... Jeremiah 48, 10 says, Cursed be he that doeth the work of the Lord deceitfully, and cursed be he that keepeth back his sword from blood. Preaching the word of God will cut some cuts on you and draw some blood spiritually. Preachers who won't preach on sin because they may lose their crowd or they may get somebody upset. Hey, we all have weaknesses and strengths. We have to be able to identify uh, the abilities and be honest and our strengths and our weaknesses and to be able to separate out what needs to be worked on. The greatest example of this anywhere in the Bible is the nation of Israel. They would never admit, they would never admit or identify their real problem. You know what they did? They left God after David. Solomon went to pieces and everything else goes to pieces. After that, the rest of the kings of Israel and Judah, kingdom gets split and it's a mess. And instead of them identifying the problem and examining themselves, listening to what the word of God said, listening to what the men that were preaching to them said, no, no, you know what they did? They did the same thing that we do. They just kept adding more religious things in their life. They were in total denial Of their true spiritual condition and their true spiritual situation. Oh, and let me tell you this did they ever hate preaching? They hated preachers. God sent them the prophets. And the prophets in the Old Testament are much like preachers today. They took God's side against a nation that was totally denial of God and against God, and today, preachers take the side of God against people who don't want to do anything with God. And they hated him. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse uh, 37, it says when he talks about what some of the terrible things they did to him, Bible says in Hebrews that one of the prophets got sawed in half. Now, tradition says it was Isaiah. I don't know if it was it or not, but somebody got sawed in half. Second Chronicles chapter 24, verse 21, here's a guy that was out preaching the word of God and telling them what God wanted them to do and what they weren't doing, and they stoned him. In 1 Kings twenty two fourteen, 14, O Micaiah, up against Ahab, up against Jezebel, two of the wickedest people on this planet, and had led the nation of Israel into deep apostasy. He stood up and stood up for them, and he got smacked in the face for it. In Jeremiah chapter 26, verse 23, that young prophet there, he got killed with a sword. Why? Simply because he preached the word of God. You want to jump up to Acts chapter 7? Stephen is before the elders of Israel after the death of Christ. He preaches to them of what they've done through the Old Testament and they killed him. Israel didn't want to hear the truth, they didn't want to hear preaching. They wanted to be told how wonderful they were, how they were God's people, how they were the chosen seed. They wanted to talk about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the fathers. They did not want to hear about their true spiritual condition. God's people don't want to today either. It's just simply that way. And finally, in 606 B.C., God took everything away. Nebuchadnezzar comes up from the south, Shenachar comes down from the north, burns everything, destroys everything, carries them off into captivity for the next 2,000 years. And you know what? They still didn't accept anything that God told them. In fact, now they even killed his son when he showed up in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And they have endured 4,000 years of unbearable suffering all because they would not identify the problem and deal with it. And I'll be honest, I see Christians like that all the time. I see them go through their life, and I see them struggle with things, and I see them, I see them go through the, the, the most horrendous times in their life, and when it really comes down to it, it's because they won't look inside themselves. They won't be honest with who they are. They won't deal with the problems in their life and then take it to the Word of God that can fix it. Instead, they'll start like a Christmas tree, hanging all kinds of religious ornaments all over their world and all over their life. They'll get baptized. They'll go to a church. They'll get in a choir. They'll go do this. They'll go out and buy a Bible. They'll go out and get into a Bible study. They'll get into all these things. They'll do everything but examine themselves and look and be honest and deal with the issue. Oh, that's amazing. Second thing you have to do after you identify the problem, you have to isolate the problem. Once you've identified it, Now you got to put it in a room all by itself. you got to target it. You don't put it aside and work on other issues that don't really matter so you don't have to deal with the real issues. You say to yourself, by being honest, this is my issue and I have to deal with it. I have a problem and here it is. You know, the Christian life is nothing more than a series of levels, like steps with landings. And you'll go up 10 steps and then you'll hit a landing. And that landing, you'll have to deal with an issue. And once you deal with that issue, then you go up another 10 steps with another landing and another issue. And your whole Christian life is a spiritual growth process of walking up those spiritual stairs, coming to the landing, God now showing you there's something in your life you've got to deal with to get to the next landing. And the more you go up the ladder, the more minute and focused it becomes. It's a lot like you see these pictures over here that I took and, and put up there, uh, the heaven declare the glory of God. You see that one over here of the moon. And uh, when you look at the moon and you go out at night, you know, and the moon's full and it's beautiful and it just looks like it's the most beautiful thing in the world. You bring your telescope out, catch that moon when it's about halfway where you got that Terminator down through the middle of it, and you uh, you put 25 power eyepiece in it and it looks really nice. You put 100 hour, it looks Bigger. And by the time you get down to 300 400x, it looks like a junkyard. I mean, there are crocks and crevices and there's busted stuff and rocks strewn, sharp as razors, everywhere. It isn't the hospitable, beautiful place that you thought it was when you looked at it. And we like to look at ourselves under low magnification. We really do. We like to look at ourselves at about 25 power. Now, my box of eyepieces here, I don't have a 25 power. I don't even have 50. I start at 125 and go up from there. And I start preaching to you, I'll start out at 125, but by the time I'm done, I'll be up around four or 500. But you know what the preaching does? It forces you to look at the imperfections in your life. It cracks down to magnification. You come in here thinking, I don't mean to do this you'll come in here all thinking, oh, I got the joy, 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 and you got yourself deceived. And boy, you can sit through 45 minutes with me and no wonder you hate me. I am the nicest guy you ever met in your life. My mama loves me. I got three dogs at home who would rather spend time with me than anybody on this planet. I can walk up to any dog any place on the planet. I don't care how mean he, when he sees me, he knows I'm a nice guy, he's my friend. But you know when you walk in here and you get yourself, when I get my, I don't know how many times I went to a place to hear somebody preach, and boy, I'm thinking to myself, I am really got this thing together, but the time he was done with me, I was dragging my rear end out there, boy. He cut me to pieces. When a child of God is serious about his relationship with God, then he'll address each issue, and he'll move up to the next level. When he won't do that in time, he'll find another church. Well, and that's how it works. That's exactly how it works. Somebody'll go to a church for a year and then because they won't deal with things in their life, that Holy Spirit of God begins to focus that thing and you, can't, you don't want to deal with it. you don't want to focus with it. you don't want to have any, you don't want to tell anybody about it. You, you, you get so miserable and, and so what you do is you'll find another church and you'll start the whole process over again. And well obviously when you go, you'll blame the church, you'll blame the preacher, you'll blame everybody there. But the problem is you came to a level in your life and you didn't want to move up to the next and you were miserable, so you went to a church where you could start all over again at level one. And you know what will happen? By the time you move back up in that church for a year or so and you'll get to that, that level again, then you'll find another church. I've seen people jump to four or five churches in four or five years of their life. You know Why? because they'll get to that level and they don't want to deal with it and the excuse they use is, well, it's not friendly or it's not this, it's not that. And the real issue is you're on level three, you won't go to level four, so you'll go to a church and you'll go right back to level one and feel good again. I know how it works. Say, man, you know a lot of, I've done it. You're looking at the level of man that you ever met in your life. For years I wanted to stay on one level. And that's how it works. Now the third thing. You got to identify it. Then you got to isolate it. Then you got to annihilate it. Now let me say this. I don't know what your problem is. Maybe you don't have a problem today. But whenever you do have a problem you will never solve an issue in your life until you first understand and see it as God sees it and then you hate it as much as God hates it. You'll never get past booze in your life until you hate booze as much as God does. You'll never get past the drugs in your life until you hate it as God hates it and see the, the damage it does to your life, to other people around you, your family. Now, I got a great example of this, and I've been waiting all week to use this, so I hope it works for you. We live in a world of terrorism. There's people who stay awake 24 hours, seven days a week for one reason, that is to kill everybody in America. They hate us. They hate us. They will do everything they can. And you do know that when a man or a woman is willing to give their life to take five or six others, it's almost impossible to stop. If a man walks in with a gun, you see him coming down the stairs, you can deal with it. Somebody makes a display of something before they do it. But somebody who is willing to trade his life for your life is almost impossible to stop because you don't know he's going to do it till he's already done it. 9-11. The Muslim world today, and not all Muslims, but the radical Muslims today, they, they, they hate Western civilization, civilization for many, many reasons. The main one is the Crusades. When, the Roman, when all of the Rome and everything destroyed everything that was going on and it really put them into a, a, a bad taste in their mouth and they lump everybody in the same boat and here we are today. And they hate us. And they're going to try to wipe us out and do everything we can. Now, I don't know if you know this or not, but in the Bible... In Galatians chapter 4, and we don't have to turn to it. We can go through it some night on Bible study if you want. Verses 22 through 31, it talks about the Jews and the Muslims. It talks about Isaac, who was the promised seed of Abraham, and Ishmael, who was of the bond servant. And it talks about how that the bond servant never liked the, 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 the servant with promise. He he tried to do everything, and history shows us how he tried to destroy Israel in every way, shape, or form in his today. But at the end, the Bible says in Galatians chapter 4 that when God comes back, he's going to wipe out and annihilate all of those nations that are up against his people. And it's an interesting thing in there because when he gives you that analogy of Ishmael and Isaac, in the passage, Isaac represents your new nature, And Ishmael represents your old nature. Now, I'm waiting any moment for President Obama to call me on the phone because he's probably Skyping in this morning and I'll have to take that call because he's he's sitting on the edge of his seat wanting to know how to defeat. I can tell you how to defeat ISIS and Al-Qaeda and everybody else out there that's a radical. The same way you have to deal with your flesh. Annihilate them. You don't negotiate with them. You don't make peace treaties with them. They don't want peace treaties. While we're talking around a peace table, they look at that as weakness. They only understand one thing. They only respond to one thing. That is brute power and brute force. The more you play with them, the more they will kill you. Any group of people that would put a man in a cage and set him on fire, any group of people that would behead women and men and take little 13-year-old boys or are about the age of your kids in our youth group and kill them because they're walking a soccer game, anybody would bury little children alive, rape women, cut off their faces, cut off their noses, cut off their ears, and they want to live for one thing, that is to destroy you. You can't deal with that. When we were up against the Nazis in World War II, it was unconditional surrender. When we fought the Japanese in World War II, it was the A-bomb, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. There's no quarter you can give them. You have to deal with them at the same force level as they are. And when it comes to your flesh and the problems you have, you can't hold peace negotiations with your flesh. You can't sit around the bargaining table, well, flesh, you don't do this, and I'll let you do this. <laughs> you don't sit around and say, well, you know what? I know you're the flesh, and the Bible says, inside my flesh dwelleth no good thing. But I read a translation the other day that maybe give a little light on that. So I'll tell you what I'm going to try to work with you. You're a fool. It'll deceive you, and it'll destroy you. There's only one thing you can do with the problems you have and it's what we need to do as a nation with the global problems we have is the enemies that, that, that are so evil and so wicked that want to destroy you. And you might as well get a head start on it because God's going to destroy them all when he comes back. Read Zechariah chapter 14. You got to annihilate it. You got to find every verse in the Bible and you've got to bomb whatever your problem is out of existence. I love watching the news. I've got to tell you, these last couple wars in the Gulf have been much more interesting than all the other wars because you never got to see them. There was in World War II when things happened. Families didn't find out what happened to their kids for maybe a year later. There was no news media reporting it. You watch it live on television now. And I've got to be honest, I like it. I'm not a war lover any shape or form, but you know what? If you're going to blow up the world, I want to see it. <laughs> I love those laser-guided bombs. You know, you see on TV, and you see this crosshair out here with the crosshairs on on this building, and I love it. You hear all these guys talking back and forth, and and and. You know, military jargon, and they got their little codes and they're calling back and forth, and they got that crosshairs on the ground. And there's somebody, some special foreigners team or unit SEAL teams on the ground, and they got that thing painted with a laser. And that bomb is zoomed on that laser, and you watch that thing, and that thing will go right down the smokestack of that building. It's the most, those laser guided bombs are the most amazing things you ever saw with wiping out our enemy. Listen to me your enemy is your flesh. Your enemy is what you struggle with with your problems. And I'll tell you what you need. You don't need the nice little flowery verses that are give you this or that. You need some laser-guided verses that will go right down the chimney of your problem. Amen. Annihilate it. Amen. Blow it out of the water. Don't show it any quarter. And until you do... You're just another peace negotiator with a being that waits 24-7 to destroy you and will. And I want to tell you right now, and I'm not a prophet of doom, but America's going to get clobbered. There's a number of reasons for why I say that, but I'll tell you what. So will you if you're not willing to annihilate your flesh and deal with the problems. Now, you begin to see how all this builds together, how that you examine yourself, you prove yourself, you know yourself. And then you you go through and you deal with all these things with the problems, you identify it, you you bring it through, you annihilate it, get all these things going. And the reason why you do is because when sin is left unattended in our lives and we do not enact the biblical process to deal with it, then sin does the same four things that Jeremiah said the preaching would undo. You know what sin does? Sin will take root in your life sin will take root in our lives. It starts with forming bad habits and then leads to patterns in our lives and then the next thing it does, sin will build a stronghold in your life. You won't be in charge of your life anymore. You won't decide when you're going to do this and when you're not going to do this. Your flesh will. And sin will destroy you if you don't destroy it. And unfortunately, it'll destroy your family in most cases. Sin will take over your life and completely block your ability to see anything spiritual or to have any relationship with God. And I say what I said early on, your relationship with God is the number one thing. Now, there's many examples of this in the Bible, and yes, I'm just about finished here. Another hour and we'll be done. There's many examples of this in the Bible, but the one that really relates to us and we've talked about here lately so you can all relate to it is the great story of Samson. He's found in Judges chapter 13 through 16. And, and, and you know the story. You know the story. Samson wound up in the biggest mess you could ever find in your life. And and, and it, it's so simple. When God, when God ceased to be his number one priority in his life, you know who became the number one priority in his life? Delilah. When God quit being the number one priority in his life, then Delilah moved in and she became the number one thing in his life. And three things happened to them when he embraced sin more than he did God. Now, the first thing, and I'm going to get to the end of the story here. I won't tell you the whole story because most of you probably know it if you've been to Sunday school at any time or place in your life. And you know that the first thing that she had the Philistines do when they finally got him is they put his eyes out. When you have sin in your life and I have sin in my life and we don't deal with it and we don't bring it to God and we don't put this process in a thing, you know what it does? Sin blinds you. Samson couldn't see God anymore. All he could see was Delilah. He didn't want to go to church anymore. He just wanted to be with Delilah. He didn't care what Delilah wanted to do. He just wanted to be with her. I've seen that. Boy, I've seen that more than I could ever hope to not see it. This woman completely took his relationship from God. When he got out of the Bible, and I must clarify and go to Delilah's defense here for just a second, Delilah didn't get him out of the Bible. Delilah didn't get him away from God. No, it was Samson's own choice to leave God, but every time we decide we're going to leave the Bible and God, there'll be a Delilah waiting for us to take us the rest of the distance. And she represents the Philistines, and the Philistines represent the world system. Now, when you let the book go, the Word of God, its principles, then you head into the wrong place, then you'll always find the problems there that are going to take over your life in time. The second thing that she did through the Philistines is once that they put his eyes out, then he bound him with chains and fetters. That's the second thing. Once your sin blinds you and you won't deal with it, then your sin binds you. You become a slave to it. Delilah not only completely took him away from God and his family, Delilah became his stronghold. And, you know, I'm talking about Delilah, and I'm sure you're all thinking about some woman out there that you would call Delilah, but really Delilah in the story is a woman, and I'm going to tell you, Delilah can be a woman today in somebody's life or it can be a guy today. But Delilah can be anything that takes you away from God. Oh, he was captivated by her sensual ways. He was overwhelmed with her beauty. She was a looker. The smell of her hair. Why he was sticking his nose in her hair, I'm not sure, but as he embraced her, the smell of her hair, her perfume. Holstein. Dark night. Midnight under a Shanghai wharf. (laughs) He looked into her eyes, and they were so beautiful and so passionate. Her lips were so tender and sweet. Her silk clothing was so beautiful to behold. Oh, he thought, I found my dream woman. This is the woman that I've always waited for. Look at her. Oh, she's everything I wanted. What else could I do? Well, let me tell you something, pal. When it comes to giving up your relationship with God versus her, My advice is to put a full magazine in her and then move on down the road. She'll destroy you every time. And you know, the Delilahs of this life will always betray you, whether it be somebody real or somebody that's something in your world. The world will always betray you. It betrayed Samson. It blinded him. It binded him. And then the Bible says that they hooked him to a grinding wheel and your sin will grind you. Samson, we know from our story, wound up as a spiritual suicide, a man who was called of God to deliver his people, but instead he himself got sold out and deceived to the world, and it wound up killing him. Listen, when it comes to the things of this world and the lies of life, as I said a moment ago, they'll betray you in the end every time. And how many times have I seen a Christian and thought of Samson in these final days of his life? Judges chapter 16 says that they stripped him naked. They chained him to a, a grinding wheel that ground out their grain. Normally a horse or an ox would do that. But they put Samson there. And they all sat around and had all of the food and the drink and the wild stuff while right in the middle, Samson, ground the grain and went around in a circle for the rest of his life. Boy, I've seen that many, many times and I've seen so many God's people, so many people that are chained to that old world and they just go around in a circle in a life and it grinds them down to a powder. Now that's a stronghold in your life. Then they take him to the Philistine temples and they, they, they shackle him to the two main pillars. And the world that he loved so much, the world that he gave up God for, the world that he said, God, I'm not going to deliver your people. I'm going to go and be with her and all of the things that she represents. They mocked him. They made fun of him. They made sport of him for all to see. How many times I've looked at that in a person's life when I'm saying there's a child of God, the aristocracy of heaven, chained through the strongholds of this world, tied down and bound in the fetters of this old world, doing the work of the devil in this world instead of the work that God saved him for and called him to. Now, the number one relationship you as a Christian should have over all other relationships, is you're one with your Lord and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. This church here is here to help you do that. I don't care what your problem is. I don't care what you've been into. I don't care what has befallen you. Maybe it was your fault. Maybe it was not your fault, but you're struggling with it. I want to tell you this morning, the answers are in that book. The answers are you coming to the place that you're tired now of being a victim of this old world. You're fed up with it running your life. You're going to take it back and give it to somebody who will give you everything in your life exactly the way it needs to be. But it's your choice. I know it's the truth, I know it's the right way, but I can only make that decision for me. You have to make it for you. But it has to be run through a balance. It has to flow through a structure. It has to be a balance of you being willing to first examine yourself, then willing to prove yourself unto God, and all the time being honest and knowing who you really are. Then it comes with you looking at the issues in your life when they come up, and they're going to come up. The fact you get saved doesn't mean your problems are over. It means now you have the wherewithal to deal with them. And you deal with it by first identifying the problem. Then you take that problem and you put it over here and you isolate it. And then you get your ordinance of laser-guided bombs and missiles and torpedoes and everything else and you annihilate it. You get your little three-by-five card that's got the verses that you need and every time that ugly monster sticks its head up out of the hole, you go to those verses and you put it back down. You fight it with everything you got. If somebody, well, you went out of here today or you went to the grocery store and you were walking out and somebody ran up and grabbed one of your little kids, God forbid, started to take them off in your car, you may be an aluminum here by yourself. You may not have a concealed carry permit. You may not have anything to fight with, but you would fight with everything left in you to keep somebody from taking that child that you love out of you and take it where God knows where it's going to go. You'd fight for it. Well, I'd. Your kid is the most personal, most precious possession you have. But I want to tell you, above that is your personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And you'll let somebody come in and take that from you and never lift a finger. If it's worth anything, folks, it's worth fighting for. And I look out here today and I see you good people. And honestly, the reason why I'm willing to invest my life in you and to give you whatever you need to help you however, whatever you need, whatever problems you're in. You know the real reason why I do it? Because I think you're worth fighting for. I know that God's got a plan for every one of you. And I know sometimes the world will do what to you what it did to Samson. And all you need is somebody to help you put it in a right order and straighten it out. That's what the structure of the church does. It helps you get through those things. I'm not giving you these six things to do and this saying, go do them. I'm telling you this is what you need to do and I personally will help you do it because that's what it takes. Every head bowed and every eye closed. <clears throat> now let me say something to you. It's just a second. We'll be finished here in just a moment. Maybe you're here this morning and you heard what I said and you know this is what you need but maybe you've never taken the first step. And that first step is to get saved, to trust the Lord Jesus Christ as your own personal Savior. That's the first step. That's the first thing. You'll have no power in your life to undo anything until the power of God gets in your life through the day you trust Christ as your own personal Savior. Now, here's how you know if you're saved or not. If you're sitting here this morning and you say, Bob, I don't know for sure if I die right now. You may have a boatload of problems. You may have no problems. But you'll say in your heart, Bob, I'm sitting here this morning and I don't know for sure right now that if I died today that I'd go to heaven to be with the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the only thing you've got to answer today. If you know for sure you're going, praise the Lord. And if you don't know, you need to make sure. Now, our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray for you, for you this morning if you find yourself in that scenario. Whatever decision you make this morning will be based on you. Nobody is going to do anything to, uh, to force you. It's your choice. My job is over. I've laid out the truth the best I know how. From this point on, you have to do business with God. But maybe you're a young man or a young lady or a mom or dad here this morning, and you say, Bob, I'm not sure if I died right now that I'd go to heaven. Yeah, I got some issues. or No, I don't have any issues, but I want to know for sure. I don't want to spend another day stepping out maybe into eternity without God. If that's your, if that's your situation this morning, while well, our heads are bowed and no one's looking around, would you let me pray for you? Would you just right now, Put up your hand and say, Bob, pray for me. I'm not sure if I die, I go to heaven. Just let me see it and put it back down. Anybody? God bless you, sweetheart. God bless you, sir. God bless you, pal. Anybody else? Anybody else? Put it up so I can see it. Anybody in the back? Did I miss anybody? Anybody else anywhere? All right, let me pray for you. How Father, we do thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. Lord, these are good people here today, and Lord, I think they're worth fighting for. I I know they're worth a lot, Lord. You say you don't know them. I I don't need to know them. The reason why I know they're invaluable because you died for them 2,000 years ago, and you saw something in them then that, that I don't see now, but I go based on you seeing it, that they're special people. And Lord, a couple of them have raised their hand today. that are not sure if they died today, they'd go to heaven. We need to make sure of that today. And Father, you're the only one from this point on that can do whatever needs to be done. So I turn it now completely over to you. I know I preached and I gave it to you before I preached, but I still had to be the mouthpiece. But from this point on, there's nothing more I can say. Holy Spirit of God, you do the work of your office and you let nothing stand in the way of you having your way here. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Every head bowed and every eye closed. Here, here it is. I've got some people across the back here that have their Bibles, that know the Word of God. If you're here and you raise your hand and you want to you go to the next step and you want to find Christ as your own personal Savior, we'll take you into the, one of our rooms back there and privacy of it and open up the Scriptures and show you how you can know for sure you can be saved. But here's what I want you to do. If you raise your hand and you meant business with God, nobody's looking around, wherever you're at right now, if you want to know for sure how to be saved, just stand up where you're at. I'll have one of my people come and take you, take you in the back, and we'll, we'll go to the Word of God, and we'll find out how to be saved. Anybody? Who's going to be the first? Don't put it off. It's the most important decision you ever make in your life. You got issues in your life. You got problems in your life. Today is the day that you begin to fix those problems. Who will be first? Anybody? I'm not going to wait long. I've done everything I know how to do. You raise your hand. You meant business. I know your feet right now feel like they weigh 500 pounds. That's the first step. Cast it off. Stand up. Let us take the Word of God and show you how to be saved. Anybody? Anybody at all? Make sure today, this is your day to start your new life in Christ Jesus. Anybody? Our Father, we do thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus, and we do love you so much. We thank you for the time we've been able to open up your word today, and thank you for the truths that came from it. Lord, help these dear people to, to uh, take what we've talked about today, and Lord, help them to, to grow and to understand and to become, Lord, uh, everything that you want them to be. Let them know that I would help them any way that I could, that I love them, Father, simply because you love them. And I believe they're good people. And I believe they're worth whatever time that that I would invest or my people would invest in their lives. And we'll thank you for all you do now. And we'll praise you in Jesus' name for a sake we ask it. Amen.